podcast where we talk to people from the world of audio about their ideas, opinions, and methods. Hi, this is Mark Young. In today's episode, I'm speaking with American singer-songwriter John Grant. After nearly abandoning his musical career following the breakup of his band The Czars, John went on to find solo success by distilling personal challenges into songs that can be unsparing, poignant, and witty, quite often all at the same time. I met up with John at East Coast Studios in London, fresh off a UK tour for his latest album, Love is Magic. In the podcast, we discuss why he nearly crashed out of music, how he found his creative bearings again, and how learning several foreign languages has affected his songwriting. John Grant is next. John, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Oh, it's a pleasure, Mark. Thanks so much for your for your company's support. You just finished a UK tour, is that correct? Yes. Um, just yesterday, I got back to London, and uh, it was quite a lot of fun, I have to say. But I'm glad to be sort of having a little bit of down. But the tour itself, it, it was essentially everywhere except for London. Is that? Yeah, <clears throat> we did London on the last leg, and we did we did a bunch of places that we hadn't done yet, except for the only place we did twice was Manchester. Okay, okay. I mean, n- not to be unkind, I, uh, to call it provincial Britain, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, but but I guess what I'm getting at is, you know, we're just weeks ahead of where Britain, where the UK is, might crash out of the European <laughs> Union. Yeah. So to me, it was just interesting. I just wanted to ask, do you get that vibe at all when you're doing it? Like, you know, outside of Cosmopolitan London, what the vibe is like, or are you so focused on the performance and and that you don't really feel what's going on outside of the concert venues? Yeah. And I, I would say the, the latter. I'm, I'm so focused on the performance and just getting through the day as far as, you know, getting enough sleep and making sure that my voice is fit mm-hmm. to do the show and I'm taking care of myself and getting something to eat and, you know, doing whatever interviews I have to do. And it's usually, you know, pretty pretty packed full until and then sound check is pretty early in the day and then mm. you know it's just like clockwork from there but i i also find it to be quite overshadowed by the whole trump thing because everything just pales in comparison to <laughs> to that horror yeah. you know so um but no i don't feel like i i i suppose i don't want to i don't want to be thinking too much about that because it's, it's too grotesque mm. you know yeah well I mean, they, the saying goes, you know, bad times make great art. Yeah. And you are known for mining personal challenges mm-hmm. at difficult times to make great music. Yeah. So can you extrapolate that to a national level? Do you think if, whether it's Trump or whether it's Brexit, I don't know, do you feel? I definitely think it's going to cause, it's definitely going to cause some art to happen for sure. Mm. It, it has caused some, some some things to happen for me, you know, creativity wise, Mm. because a lot of anger comes up as a result of, you know, things, some of the things that are going on. So, yeah, I do believe it, it affects the, you know, the Germans have the zeitgeist, you Mm. know, term. And that's definitely something that I think you're hearing a lot of right now, affecting a lot of people. We should just say we both speak German, but uh, yes. you're going to say zeitgeist. I'm going to throw Weltschmerz right back at you. Because <laughs> yeah. if there's ever a, an appropriate term, German term, yeah. world world pain or yes. suffering, you know, something yeah. like that. You know? Absolutely. But maybe for, for the listeners out there podcast land, I should back up a little bit. Uh, you're American. 
you're based in Iceland though. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we could go back into your backstory a little bit more for, for mm-hmm. the people who don't know you. You're born in Michigan, raised in Colorado. That's right. In a conservative religious family. Yeah. Um, until I was 12, we were Methodist. And then when we went to Colorado, my parents chose to become Southern Baptist. Okay. So that was, that was more of a strict, you know, a stricter, more confined um, ideology. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bible-based ideology, but yeah, and then uh, and then when I was was senior in high school, I got into German, mm-hmm. and that was something that I sort of latched onto because things were sort of going, you know, tits up for me at that point, mm-hmm. and so I was looking for really looking for something to do, and and I and I found that I had a talent for language, so I really latched onto that, and that sort of saved me my senior year. And then decided to go and study in Germany, and I ended up doing that for six years. I wanted to get in that. Maybe I can yeah. s- uh, switch it around. Um, sure. I heard it was also you were a Nina Hagen fan. <laughs> That's why yes. you, you were interested in German. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Seems like um, language, love of language, seems to me that it has always come from music somehow. That's interesting. Because the two are, you know, very connected, obviously. And Russian, you know, I grew up playing classical piano, so I... I really loved the Russians, you know, I loved Peter and the Wolf mm. from Prokofiev and somebody was always, you know, some teacher was always talking about Skriabin and um, then there was, um, of course, Rachmaninoff. Well, that's exactly what I was going to get at was yeah. th- whether you felt like you, is it safe to say you felt like an outsider when you were growing up, when you were a, a teenager or a younger or? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> Yeah, it was. I it was sort of communicated to me very early mm. on that I wasn't, you know, normal. Yeah, because uh, your family, the religious conservative, they had a hard time. They had a hard time with your homosexualities. I mean, that came much later. It came it, later. I mean, they were worried about it, you know, yeah. all throughout my childhood, and you know, you, the child picks up on that, of course. Right. And you know, people were always telling me that I was gay before I even started thinking about sexuality. Ah. So, okay, you know, that translated to a lot of anger and rage for me because of the arrogance of trying to of telling somebody who they are yeah, you know yeah or constantly you know it's it's like um if you're everywhere you go before you haven't even started thinking about sexuality yet and if you all you hear is faggot all the time it's like it's it's very distressing i would say yeah i mean it just it I don't know. I, I'm not a psychologist, so I'm not. I can't describe exactly what it did to me, but it it put me on a defense, you know, and put me on notice right away that you know things weren't going to be smooth. <clears throat> so I don't know. That was it. Was very. I guess what I was. It, getting, was, it had a, a huge effect on me. You know that. And I was what I was period. what I was trying to bring together was those two elements of music. You were saying you you learned piano at an early age, mm-hmm. and uh, those two elements of of. How, how did music translate into that as you were growing up? How was it that, what was music for you when you were growing up? Was it just that your parents were sending you to take piano lessons? Yeah, I don't even know how that came about. I think they, I think, you know, my bro, my sister and I were seven and nine years younger than my brothers. And my brothers were, you know, the red-blooded all-American sports heroes. And then my sister and I came along later and we were a whole different ball of wax. And I think they were sort of like, Yikes! We better. I don't know what to do. What the hell to do with these two? So, you know, they threw a piano teacher at us, and hmm. and um, we both took to it, you know, very naturally. So, music was something that I think came very quite naturally to me. Hmm. I think it was something that was sort of built in a little bit. I mean, my father could sing, and my mom played the piano a little bit in church, you know, hymns and that sort of thing, or at home, not really even 
at church, but just sort of, you know, because of church. Mm-hmm. She'd play some hymns at home, and she could sing too a little bit. And they were in the choir and all that. And and so, um, yeah, my love of music started really young. And I had my brothers listening to all the, you know, rock music from the 70s. Mm-hmm. You know, disco sucks, that was their motto. And, you know, it was Kiss and Aerosmith and yeah. Van Halen and Supertramp, Elton John... Yellow Brick Road was huge for us. I mean, to this day, I mean, that's such a landmark album. So, but was at that point when you were a teenager, were you already thinking, I would like to have a career in music? Or you were actually thinking, no, at that point, like you said, language. You wanted to go be a translator. Well, I was really good at acting, too, in high school. And I was encouraged, you know, my teacher was always saying, you know, if... You know, I would I would encourage you to go on and do this if it's something you feel like you're interested in. And, um, you know, but my parents, you know, because of religious reasons, it was, you know, going into a music career, you know, it would have to be Christian music. Mm. And Striper. Yeah. That wasn't, I mean, there, there are, there were incredible, in the 70s, there were incredible, you know, Christian groups like Phil Keggy and mm. the second chapter of Acts, people who were incredible musicians and incredible singers and you know so there was good stuff there but that wasn't what I wanted to do you know and um, so my parents were quite discouraging as far as no you've got to you've got to go to a Christian college and you've got to go um, you have to do this you know you have to do you have to become who you are within a very specific confined context you know so that didn't that didn't really go well so i you know I, the language was something though that i i think i used that to sort of shoehorn my way into music if i look back on it now mm. sort of the first time i've really thought about it but maybe i i looked for something that i could get some support from my parents for and you know speaking a foreign language was something they found really impressive oh. and you know i probably started doing that to make myself more interesting because yeah. i didn't feel like i had anything to offer and um and so um, that was, it was funny. Music led to language, and then language led me back to music. Mm. So that that's sort of interesting. I'm just thinking out loud about it for the first time, really, because I've answered these questions many times before, but never really thought about it like that. So, well, if I can make you think, then it's it's, it's that shirt. I know it's that shirt. I haven't wasted your yeah, <laughs> wasting your time. That's Definitely right. not wasting my time. <laughs> so okay, so it's the late '80s. Mm-hmm. You're learning German. Uh, where did you go? You went. Well, the first place I went was to a little village called uh, Rede mm-hmm. in northwest Germany, like on the, on the border to Holland, and I did a like a six week course there with um, like the community college because I almost I pretty much almost flunked out of high school or did they they gave me an extra point so I could graduate. They wanted to just get rid of me. Seriously, they were like, "We want him out of here, so we're just going to give him an extra point and let him graduate." And, um, you know, they all knew, all the teachers, they knew that I was, there was something really wrong my senior year. Mm. I was struggling. But um, I think they also, I think it wasn't that they didn't want to help me, but I think a lot of them also sensed that I couldn't talk about what was going on with me as well. So, you know, the language thing sort of saved me. And then I went to community college and did that course that I just mentioned. And then I decided after I'd been in Germany... Um, for six weeks and aced the German course there and sort of came out on top in front of everybody else. Mm. It was clear that it was something that I could, 
you had to do something with for exactly and so i i really um went further into that and decided i wanted to go study in germany then i got accepted to an american program in heidelberg oh no way yeah and, and was, uh, yeah heidelberg as well yeah were you yeah that's where i would i did my junior year abroad there yeah that's where i got that's what i did too yeah funny well, I did a similar thing. I did the I did the PNDS, the um, the German proficiency exam, mm-hmm. yeah. and because I wanted to study Russian in Heidelberg. Oh wow! So I passed the PNDS and got into the and was thrown into the Russian program there, <laughs> which was a real struggle. Oh yeah, because um, of imagine. course you know you, I had as a as a language student or you know applied linguistics, which of course is you know, translation and interpreting. You have to. German is your base language, so then you have to take a you have to take two languages. Yeah. So then you have to have English as one of your languages, and then Russian was the other language, and you translate in and out of German with both of those. So those first, you know, the the initial, I barely passed my um, Russian proficiency exam that first year in Heidelberg, and the teachers said, "We know you're going to get it, so we're just going to." Uh, We're going to push you on through. I, that's that's really ambitious, though, because, I mean, I, all I was doing was learning German, but mm. you were actually learning Russian in a German environment. That's, yeah. that's really uh, bold. Well, it, it was. It was probably a little harder than I, you know, I bit off a little bit more than I could <laughs> chew, but, but I had to do it at that, you know, and you just had to do it. Like you said, you get thrown in the deep end. Yeah. And so you just do it because yeah. I wanted to be a conference interpreter, I yeah. thought. Yeah. But when I was in a school there, you know, all the issues that I was, you know, running away from really started to surface and sort of manifested in the form of severe crippling anxiety disorder, Mm. which made it impossible for me to go into interpreting because you had to be standing in front of, you know, the class all the time being torn apart about, you know, with all the mistakes that you were making. And so that was, I've never really, I haven't really processed that you know that's probably something that i something that i'll work on in music that the german years because hmm. germany for me was basically about anxiety like severe crippling anxiety and really dark depression and i didn't I, you know i didn't take to the german way immediately either <laughs> you know you know argument as a lifestyle yeah <laughs> yeah it's just definitely- <laughs> constant <laughs> argument yeah. as a lifestyle yeah when i was i was enjoying listening to your your back catalog to prepare for this mm. uh interview and there's the one song the that's the good news right you know and and it starts off with you in speaking in german saying yeah. you know uh, hallo johnny hallo johnny ich bin's yeah yeah du ich fand dein benehmen gestern uh, etwas daneben yeah exactly. <laughs> it's beautiful and and what, what really to me immediately was the the johnny johnny, yeah, johnny. Not, not johnny yeah. but the way germans say johnny and yeah. and to me you know it, it, it's johnny. that it's that awareness of it and then you go on to to do the whole song um with a very convincing german accent in, yeah. in english and i was listening to it with uh, a uh, my german wife and a buddy of mine who happened to be staying with us and we all had a good chuckle but i could have gone the other way they could have drawn knives and who knows yeah, yeah. so well so, i mean but, if yeah. you, i mean all all we have to do is put Werner herzog on you know up for <laughs> all we have to do is put him on display and yeah. i mean that accent yeah that's just real you yeah know? <laughs> yeah but i it's funny the germans have embraced that song when i do it and mm. you're right it could have gone either way and i that was clear to me when i did it for the first time i thought on stage i was like oh wait a minute this might not be you know but they but they do find it quite funny probably because they know how much 
how passionate I am about their language. Yeah, it's, as well. it's flattering. I mean, yeah. in, in a, I guess in a in a in a maybe a roundabout way, it's 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 very flattering. Yeah, but yeah. so, but I I guess that's where I was going though with with you know uh, your love of foreign languages. How how has that impacted your songwriting in English? You're obviously a, wor- a word nerd. Mm-hmm. You know that you've what, how many four or five languages you speak now? Yeah, five. You, yeah. yeah, you have a love of language, just period. No matter what language, whatever it is. But how, is the foreign element influencing your English songwriting? Do you feel? I'm sure it does because you know in other languages people have completely different colloquialisms that we simply don't have in English and when you translate those into English of course that forces you to well it's forcing you to search your own language for cognates or for equivalents and um I mean that is the art of translating and interpreting is that often you can't do that you have to you have to say what is meant not not there's no word, word for word, word translation yeah. you know so um, it definitely forces you to think more in your language and to come up with things like, well, for just the, an example that I often give is in Icelandic, there's, um, there's a colloquial uh, phrase that goes, um, and that means to have a Arctic turn pause. Oh, okay. <laughs> and basically what the colloquialism means is to go get 40 winks go snatch 40 winks or get get to get a get a little nap in mm. you know but basically it's based on the behavior of this bird the arctic tern which is called a kriya in icelandic and before it dives in the water to get a fish it hovers just for a moment in the air and pauses and that little action is seen as is used in a colloquialism for to get yourself a little break or get a little okay. nap yeah so there's all these beautiful, you know, metaphors from nature and, you know, that are region specific, you know, um, depending on what language you're talking about. And there's so many of those things, as you know, in German and, you know, in all languages, of course, um, Russian is especially rich as well. Extremely rich language. Spanish is super rich. I haven't even really, I mean, I say that I speak Spanish and I, I do I do quite well in Spanish, you know, based on the standards that I have from going to school, you know, with applied linguistics, but I haven't even started to delve into the colloquialisms that are available in that language and the idiomatic phrases um because there's there's thousands and thousands of them, especially considering all the different countries yeah. that have their own yeah, ways yeah. of speaking Spanish. But you know, I remember when I first started learning German at the university in Germersheim, I had a British teacher for the English translation into English from German. And she was telling me how crap my English was and that I really needed to get it together. And I knew that she was right, you know, because I saw these, um, you know, English kids around me, British kids, English kids, um, and they, their English was so, you know, they, they always had the right word, you know, and I, I had a very limited vocabulary in English. So I, I was much better in German. Mm. Um, towards the end of my studies. I mean, it makes sense. You're studying in that language, so that's the vocabulary that you get. But I had to bring my English up to that level. And so learning foreign languages is what forced me to realize that my English was so poor. Uh Uh-huh. Well, so which which would answer the question in the sense that if you've really... 
if it's forced you to focus on your own vernacular, mm-hmm. I guess you'd say mm-hmm. in English, that obviously makes you a much stronger songwriter. You know, uh, absolutely because you're also, you're also. I mean, in my music, I also wanna I want to use all sorts of different registers of language because you know there's a lot of snobs out there who think you can only use you know language that's fit for literary purposes or poetry. Um, or maybe that's just their preference. They don't necessarily have to be a snob. But I, 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 I like to um, use language from all different registers. You know, street language. I like to use profanity. You know, pepper my speech with profanity when it's appropriate. And, you know, metaphors and, and all sorts of different types of registers. So it's just fascinating. And it's a never-ending... I mean, you will never... When you realize how difficult it is to master your own language is when you start to get a picture of what it is like to learn a foreign language yeah. and to really master it and get in deep. We do need to brush up if we're going to write. I guess yeah. we do need to brush up on the grammar. Um, these days it's a little bit easier, I suppose. And they're trying to shove that Grammarly app down our you see that? That's right. Yeah. For like with every single video on YouTube. Yeah. Oh, well, up. now we know what you're looking at on YouTube, right? Because they're, it's, that right. Tar- it's that targeted. They're going, John, That's right. this is the targeted ad you need. Yeah, it's We're, like uh, jockstrap ads and <laughs> Grammarly. Right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> that, you know, that's, that's going to be, yeah, on everybody's digital deathbed. They could go through <laughs> and look at the targeted ads and you're just like, oh, God. That's so that's, humiliating. That's what it's been. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's grim. It's grim. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. Your life has meant nothing. Yeah. 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 Let's jump back and say, okay, so so you had the anxiety, you came back. That's mm-hmm. when you came to Denver. That's when you started the band, the Czars, mm-hmm. right? You guys had a had a had a good run, but at some point you were indulging in some self uh, destructive behavior. You yeah, say? lots of that. Yeah. yeah, and then eventually ran its course. I mean, it's just a classic. It's a classic, you know, story of just trying to escape from your demons and using, you know drugs and booze to do that to to the extent that it's making you know life undoable or impossible you know so you know i was just going to either i was going to rot on my couch you know while waiting tables in a restaurant or i was going to get out of that cycle and do something with my life and i had you know i had natural talent for music and for language so i needed to I needed to break that cycle and my mother died around that time too in 1995 so there was a lot of um you know, there was a lot of impetus there for getting it together, mm. but it, it was it was quite some time. It was it took me until 2004 to decide to get sober, and that's when and that's when the band essentially dissolved. Pretty much, yeah, 2003, 2004. That's right. Okay, and um, the the band dissolved, and and then I sort of floated away from music. I I moved to New York City as soon as I was able to do so, and. Um, you know, I was working in interpreting there, doing some Russian uh, medical interpreting, which was fascinating, um, you know, because you could have any area of medicine and there's, you know, thousands of, you know, huge vocabularies for each school of medicine, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's vestibular or, you know, cardiology or cancer medicine. So that was really fascinating and working with people. But then one of the Midlake, one of the fellas from a band called Midlake, Eric Polito, he convinced me to come down to Texas and do my first solo album. So that's how I got back into music. You know, feeling like the Czars had been my failure. I sort of took all that on myself. Hmm. I still feel that way, but it doesn't really matter, you know. 
how was that? You were in New York. Uh, was that a point where you you just kind of thought, "I'm done with music. I'm not going to create music again," or was it? Did you? Well, did I felt, it, or did yeah. it feel more like a break? Did it feel mm. like a, t- a time away? I wasn't sure. I was I was sort of like throwing my toys out of the pram, just sort of like, "Well, I'm not going to do that anymore if I can't, you know, succeed." You know, um, that was too convincing, wasn't it? Um, yeah, so I, I, I don't know what I was doing. I, I, I think I was telling myself that I wasn't going to do music anymore, but I knew that I still wanted to somehow, that I didn't feel like it was done. But I felt like I'd failed with my band, and I felt like I failed because I simply didn't have what it takes to... to you know, I, I was unable to actually be myself on stage until quite recently. Mm. You know, if you look at past, because it's been 20 years since I started, you know, over 20 years since I started doing music. And um, it took me about 15 to 20 years to actually come out of my shell and start being myself and actually doing the music that I knew that I had always wanted to do. You know, I I was always playing it safe because I, you know, it was just communicated to me at a very young age that it was never going to be okay for me to just be myself Mm. in any way, not just music. So that was something that I internalized to such an extent that I, I just, you know, I just couldn't do it. But clearly the guys from Midlake, as you said, Mm -hmm. they clearly, I mean, was it just a question? They're like, no, no, we're not going to let you do this. They're, they're saying like, no, no, come to Texas. They they brought you down to Texas and yeah, they're like, yeah. yeah, they were, they were, they were what I mean. This can't really be overstated. Um, they sort of made this little creative nest for me down there, where I was able to start emerging as you know the person that I am on the inside that I was never able to access before. And so it was. It's because of them, and a lot of and and many other people who, you know, the people that I've surrounded myself with. There's a lot of really good eggs, um, who have gave me a, a a place to unfold and sort of emerge you know from the from the cocoon and that was that was queen of denmark that's mm-hmm. yeah where they basically were your house band so yeah. to speak yeah mm-hmm. and obviously that had a very um cathartic feel to it that yeah. whole album uh, clearly not only f- for you but also i think for that's maybe why it resonated with so many people yeah. you know that 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 feel i mean i'm definitely severely retarded when it comes to you know maturity levels and i mean I, i'm catching up you catch up quickly you know i mean once you get you know if you're doing the because i i mean i decided when i was young i wasn't gonna become anything despite the people that were saying there was no place for me mm. in society you know there's no place for you because we don't want people like you and people like you simply they don't have a place in the world so you know i this sort of this i always think of oscar Mozart from the tin drum mm-hmm. you know gunter grass because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. that was a that was a book that i really i really connected with that character this child that at the age of three decides to stop growing in order to spite the adult world and it's funny because that's exactly what I did and that's obviously why I connected to that novel so much hmm. because I I just didn't learn to do anything you know I didn't learn to take care of myself in the world I didn't learn to have a relationship I didn't learn to love I didn't learn to love myself I didn't learn to allow somebody to love me I didn't learn to 
I didn't apply myself when it came to, you know, practical things, mm. um, whether it be practicing the piano or learning how to cook. I, d- you know, I just decided there isn't, you know, if there's not going to be a place for me, then I'm not going to play your little reindeer games, you know. So, you know, that and you really screw yourself with that, you know, having had that that attitude. But, you know. But when, you can't go back and change it. No, but I mean, clearly something was, uh, when you started with your solo career mm. and you started with Queen of Denmark, that clearly started something uh, to get you where you are today. And, yeah. and, and, and like you were just saying, you now feel you're the person you always wanted to be, whether it's on stage or maybe just walking down the street. Yeah, it's true. So in a sense, that was the f- the first part of... I guess it had a very therapeutic effect, that first album, that first solo album, though. It did. I mean, it's still, you know, I mean, I'm I'm a completely different person now in that I have, you know, so many, I have such a, a much more advanced toolkit to deal with all of these things, you know. And so you never really stop fighting with these particular things. And, of course, when you get into a, you get some sort of a successful music career, you know, there's a lot of hurdles there as well. Mm-hmm. The business is difficult. It's stressful. Touring really, you know, beats you down. You know, you're always recovering from some sort of jet lag and always trying to catch up or, um, you know, and, and the lack of sleep really affects you physically. If you're a singer, of course, you constantly fighting colds. And I mean, it's it's a brutal sort of lifestyle, but it's an incredible thing to be able to do, obviously, especially now that I enjoy being on stage so much and have so much fun just being able to be myself up there or at least more and more every day you know so that it is a lot of fun now but it's definitely um you know i was talking to somebody earlier and you know a lot of times the narrative with me is you know had all these demons then he did this and now he's you know that but it doesn't really work like that you know i mean there has been a huge switch towards the positive you know, and towards um, just working through things and continuing to show up and, you know, a lot more. I mean, I've always been pretty optimistic, which is why I continued to show up, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's never a straight path. Uh, no. cl- clearly, if somebody's trying to describe your life in sure. 30 seconds or whatever yes. it might, might yes, be, yes. you know, but uh, your music has, uh, there's a lot of humor to it, <laughs> you know, um, but it can also just be brutally honest and unsparing to yourself um but also to society and if your music has a therapeutic effect do you feel like your concerts are maybe a a type of group therapy do you feel i'm just trying to get to how your fans seem to really connect with you well there's a lot of crying and laughing and both of those things make you feel pretty refreshed Mm. after you do them so i would say um it's a good combination, you know. I mean, when I sing "Glacier," there's a lot of crying that goes on during that song because there's a lot of pain out there and people mm-hmm. going through, you know, so many horrible things. And um, and then the songs, there's a lot of humor, and I I I build the set in such a way that it's like mental whiplash, you know, because after a song like you know during the set right now after "Glacier" comes the song "Diet Gum" off the new record, and "Glacier" is a song about you know how adversity and pain like a glacier carves out these beautiful valleys inside you as a metaphor which i think is really true mm. i mean if you survive it <laughs> you know? if, the glacier, if the glacier doesn't go over if it doesn't you. cut your head That's off right. as, yeah. It, yeah. as it slides by um yeah it cuts your head off slowly over the course of you know slowly. millennia but um you know that song and, the, and then after that song comes diet gum which is 
you know, the, the tirade of some idiot, you know, somebody who's like, um, you know, having a lover's quarrel or, you know, just lashing out at this person that has, you know, upset them or whatever, but is getting it wrong, mm-hmm. you know, most of the time, like always just sort of getting it wrong and sort of the grammar is a little bit incorrect because the person is really self-righteous and, and, but is always just quite a little bit off base. And it's, um, it's one of my favorite songs to do. It's a tirade, but then, you know, at the end it's, you know, the person's just standing there taking all this in and then, you know, the person is just like brings up sex again. And my character is like, okay. That was my, that was my disadvantage when I was go- listening to your songs. I didn't have the personal curation, the set list because yeah. I, you know, I was going through the songs and, and yeah, I was listening to some of the lyrics and it's like, uh, feeling a, a, uh, existential crisis coming on, you know, like where's mm-hmm. my Xanax. Mm-hmm. But that's a, um, that's an interesting point you make. <laughs> That existential stuff is always there. I mean, the what I keep coming back to in this music is the everyday is made up of, you know, laughing, despair, <laughs> um, existential crises, all sorts of things. That you, you don't ever get one thing, even when you're, say, you're going through a battle with cancer like my mom was. You don't just get cancer. You get these, you just get this string of moments. And there's, there's laughing even in that and it's a moment by moment thing, right? So you, you get snippets of conversations from other people coming into your subconscious when you walk down the street. You get billboards, the visuals coming at you. You're at the store buying, you know, a stalk of celery, and then it recurs to you that you haven't processed your mother's death while you're standing at the cash mm-hmm. register. You yeah, know, yeah. so that's what every day is like. So I build the setup, sort of, sort of like that. But you know, thinking about, I want to think about what the audience needs as far as not ripping them back and forth out of moods. Yeah. Right. But also making it challenging so that there is a little bit of mental whiplash there, like going from Glacier, which is a song about, you know, just intense hope and about if you can make it through, you know, that you can make it through, you can get perspective, you can thrive in spite of, you know, whatever it is that you're dealing with, um, into just like throwing your toys out of the pram, crazy, sex addict weirdo going on some rant you know but that's that's the reality of yeah of every day you know you're getting all that yeah yeah i mean your music is has always been very personal in nature do you feel as the years have gone by it's also getting more political i'm just thinking that you've you know you had a song about global warming um on your on your last album love is magic you were talking about selfish people ruining the the planet and also well, yeah. Chelsea Manning, you know, the, yeah, yeah. the U.S. Army whistleblower. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about, I don't think I can really be political, but I'm just talking about what I see. You know, I don't see myself as a, I mean, I see what political activists do. You know, Amy, was it Amy Goodman from Democracy Now? Mm-hmm. You know, she's, she's political. Yeah. She's an amazing force in that area, you know, but... You know, I I just talk about stuff that I suppose I I suppose I do. I, I think you can't help but if you're paying attention a little bit, well, you I, can't I, help but think about those things. I guess yeah. what I was um, getting at is, do you feel maybe it's not only looking inward? Is it looking more outward now? I mean, you were saying yourself yeah. that you've grown as a person, mm-hmm. so I guess that would make sense that your music would maybe be looking more outward as yeah. opposed to just inward. Absolutely. I, I, I've actually even said that today, that sort of this album, you know, might be a, I, I'm just, 
thinking out loud here, but um, you know, it's like it's still personal story, and then at the end is this song about Chelsea Manning. So it's sort of turning. It's like I've dealt with myself now, and I'm turning out to the world. I'm sure that I'll still do more, you know, introspection. You know, people say my music is confessional or super personal or anything, but I feel like, I mean, if you know anything about psychology or you know what people are not saying and and what you see them doing is also very revealing as Mm. to who they are so i feel like music is always a very personal thing whether you know somebody's doing grindcore that doesn't sound like you know um who knows what's going on behind all that that, you know i mean how can it not be personal right it's through your filter it's through exactly i mean it's the only one that that one has right so but yeah i suppose um Maybe turning outward more as I get older. Yeah. I heard you tell Jake Shears from Scissor Sisters fame mm-hmm. that somebody asked you about your creative process every other day. Sure. So I instead wanted to ask you about your creative process <laughs> for, the, <laughs> for this last album. I heard you went to Cornwall in just this place where there are just all kinds of uh, vintage synthesizers and stuff. So maybe let's focus on this last album. It was an incredible time down there. And what exactly did that involve? Is it more uh, uh, words for first, ideas first, lyrics first, or you coming up with a melody first? It was basically all melodies first this time. I basically went down and made all these sound canvases, if you will, to which on which I then projected, you know, my lyrics later. Mm-hmm. So it was a little bit different that way. I mean, I did. I don't feel like it. You know, the recording process was much different. You're still playing. I was still playing keyboards the whole time. I can. You know, you can write a ballad on a synth just like you can on a piano. But I did end up. You know, doing some more organic work in Texas with one of the Midlake boys. Uh-huh. So going back there and and you know getting him to do some of his incredible bass lines over my stuff and working. You know, do, working some of the ballads out on a piano there in the studio. But for the most part, I was in Cornwall making these sonic canvases and and just sitting there and listening to sounds and playing different synths. And I had this incredible synth expert and engineer and co-producer, Benj, um, who's in Wrangler. Okay, right. And with- Creep Show with me. Yes, with Steven Malander. That's one of my heroes from, you know, Cabaret Voltaire fame. And so working with them on the Creep Show project was incredible. And that that was what made me realize I needed to work with Benj on my record. Because, oh, okay. I mean, the, the beauty of Cornwall mixed with, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, you know, pristine analog synths and, you know, like a beautiful ARP 2500 modular. I mean, all these incredible machines, you know, um, the old Putney and the Cricklewood um, from, is it CVS3? I can't remember. I always get the CSV or CVS3. I think it's CSV. I can't remember. The British synth, he has one of those, and the Buchla, and the Surge modular, and he has an original Moog 3C modular, the cabinets of which are made from trees in Bob Moog's backyard. <laughs> oh, God. I mean, just incredible wow. stuff like that. The the Claptrap machine from Throbbing Gristle. Wow. All sorts of really wow. incredible toys down there, Lindrum machines, all drum machines, you know. Um, so I was just making sounds for weeks and months and wow. layering and so you've gone taking down, my time. I mean, you're going, you've gone down that rabbit hole of modular synth, or is, is Benj, he's the guy, is it you guys he, are... He does all yeah. the patching with yeah. the modular synths because I, I haven't taken to that as quickly as I would like to or thought that I would. You know, it doesn't... 
for some reason it's um it's not easy i was gonna say yeah yeah, what's harder doing that or learning icelandic to speak icelandic modular synth or you know it's like it's an interesting question i think (laughs) icelandic is definitely harder harder. than modular synths but i don't know why it's not as intuitive to me as because i i understand the the sound path you know Yeah, yeah but for some reason um I want things to go a lot quicker than than I can make uh, it happen with mm-hmm. modular sense. So I had some I have this expert in Bench who, you know, when I need to get a specific sound, you can play that for him and he can design that immediately on this instrument if you can't find it yourself. So that was incredible working with him. And um I mean it was just that the beauty of Cornwall mixed with making, sitting there making those beautiful sounds every day and, you know, walks along the ocean, watching the sun go down in that beautiful area of the world. It was, it was really, really incredible. I didn't want it to end. In fact, how long were you there? Well, it was always a couple of weeks at a time, Okay, a week here and there, two weeks here and there going back and forth. I was curating this festival in Hull huh. and doing the Scott Walker prom at the Royal Albert Hall, yep. always doing different projects. So just constantly going back and forth between Texas and uh, Iceland and England, you know, and, and then once I had like 20, you know, pieces of, you know, solid music, mm. then I went and did a bunch of ballads. And then I started putting it all together and, and then bringing the electronics into the ballads as well mm-hmm. to merge them with the more completely electronic songs. And um, I, it's the most fun I've ever had in the studio. Uh, speaking of Iceland, how long have you been there now? Six years. This, I'm in my eighth year now. Eighth year? Yeah. Okay. I've never been myself, unfortunately. I'd love to go. But oh, you got to come up there, yeah. It, it, but it, it seems like, is it really true? It seems like everybody, you're legally required to be in a band there, right? Like every, if you're an Icelander. It I does mean, seem it, that way. Yeah. I mean, is it, you're just, you're obviously, you have friends who are uh, involved. I know you're, I'm a... I'm a huge Couscous fan, so yeah. I know you, I know you work with with Biggie from from Couscous. So yeah. um, so you obviously are in with the Icelandic music scene anyway. But I yeah. mean, how is it? It's such a small community that I'm just maybe you could just kind of describe what it's what it's really like there. Is it well, just? It's strange because they they really go out into the world. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this little. I think they sort of have a. I mean, I don't know if you want to call it a chip on their shoulder. I wonder if that sounds negative, but they are aware that it's they're they're a small presence in the world. Uh-huh. So they really go out and conquer, you know, sort of a viking thing. <laughs> right. They go out, I mean they're everywhere in the world. Mm. After any show, there's always somebody from Iceland that comes backstage afterwards uh-huh. who's got a business there in Shanghai or wow. okay. you know, mm. I mean it's incredible and you know everybody's in a band, everybody sings, everybody's a modular synth expert, everybody it's quite everybody speaks four languages, you know, I mean it's so one feels rather unspecial in that, you know, in that environment, which is, I think, good. It keeps your keeps your feet on the ground, you know. It certainly seems like that. I mean, at least from from afar, it that, really but, is that yeah, way. I but, mean, everybody yeah. is in, and the people that are in bands. I don't know how I don't know how guys can stand being in like four bands. Yeah, you know, just the amount of contact you have to have with people throughout <laughs> a day. You know, is but I suppose that's it's really easy when you're young. Yeah. You know, but as you get older and start needing a little bit more personal space, of course.
course, I can't imagine. It just sounds exhausting to me. Well, also creatively. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, just the idea of focus. I digress. I know you're a busy man, uh, and Eh. you're taking a break here in Britain now, and then you're about to go do some Irish dates. Is that Mm -hmm. right? That's right. And then what, what well, you, I go to, we go to Japan next in, um, oh, in, in a couple between. weeks. Yeah. And so, so and then Japan Ireland. before Ireland. That's right. Oh, okay. So no rest. I thought you were going to be. Well, resting. I have two weeks. I have two weeks of rest and then um, we go to Japan. Two weeks is super luxurious. So <laughs> okay. I'm really looking forward to it. And, and then, uh, festival season. Yeah. And then festival season, we're playing the blue dot festival, uh-huh. which is going to be amazing. And, um, several others throughout the summer so we'll be doing that and then and also um looking at australian dates and south america in Mm -hmm. september so it'll be busy until october november and then you go back to the darkness of iceland or or to to kind of regroup and i usually go to colorado to see my sister and my Uh, brother well that's nice in the winter with the snow and blue skies i mean i love that I do. I also love Iceland in the winter, but it is diff- you really got to be careful because somebody like me that tends towards depression, mm. you really got to watch that vitamin D, you know, because yeah. it, you know, you do okay until January and February roll around and then you start to get the effects of what's been happening for yeah. months now. Yeah. And it's really brutal. There are plenty of nice cities farther north than Berlin, but I think Berlin's pretty much my limit. I'm not sure I could do the... Because mm. it starts getting... It kind of compounds, like even Copenhagen, Stockholm, and you know, and then Reykjavik's even... Yeah, know, you know, but Reykjavik is not as cold as Berlin. It's no? really interesting ah. because of that, that Gulf stream that goes by Iceland. Ah, okay. It keeps it much milder than you would think. And I mean, I've been in, I've been in Berlin on days where I thought, yeah. this cannot be possible. Yeah. What is this, St. Petersburg? Yeah. You know? It feels like, you know, deepest Siberia. Yeah, it, c- that, it can. It can. And it gets, I can't believe how hot it gets there either. It's yeah, like it's, Chicago. It's, it's the continental, Berlin is like it's Chicago. The continental climate. Yeah. 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 Yeah, definitely. But I don't care for it. <laughs> I don't care for it. Well, um, I just would like to say what a pleasure it's been to speak with you. And um, I hope I um, was able to. I hope I didn't babble too much about stuff that no one cares about. Because no. it's been, a, um, it's been as, fun, though. As long as um, we've had a good time, then. Yeah. You know, the listeners will. That is an excellent point. And I definitely have as well. So thank you for Uh, that, Mark. Great. Thanks very much, John. All the best. Pleasure. That was John Grant, and this has been Signal Path. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast for more stories from the people shaping the world of audio. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you tune in again next time. Mm